Hey there, Social Work 6382 students, and uh, welcome to this podcast lecture. This is the podcast lecture going into week number seven. So uh, pretty soon we're going to be halfway through this semester. It seems some days for me like this semester is going faster than any semester I have ever been through before. And at other times, it seems like it is going incredibly slowly. Like it is the slowest slog of a semester that I have ever lived through. And that's weird, I guess, because, I mean, it seems like it shouldn't be able to be both. And yet it is. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Uh, So this week, you're going to be listening to this. This is the first podcast lecture I'm going to do. I plan to do one more in addition to this one. This one is going to be a more like, kind of like, uh, I'll call it a practical podcast lecture that gets into some supplemental material that I think will make reading chapter number six in your textbook perhaps a little bit more interesting, perhaps a little bit more useful. That's what I'm going for anyways. Um, uh, Oh, other note, I'm recording this sitting outside. It's a really nice day today. Uh, It's bright, sunny. Uh, It's a nice fall day. It's a little cool, but you know, if you you bundle up, it's kind of nice. So you, you may hear outside noises as I'm recording this. I hope that that doesn't bother you. So anyways, yeah, this is going to be the first podcast lecture, a little bit more practical. And I'm also going to record a second podcast lecture, which is going to be, I think, uh, a little bit uh, out there, a little weirder. And that podcast lecture is going to focus more on working with communities in what I think of as a a more immersive way, a more ethnographic way. Uh, So that's my introduction to today's podcast lecture, the first podcast lecture. I'm going to pause here. I'm going to play a little bit of music. And then when that fades out, we'll come back and we'll start talking about the material that I think will make chapter six hopefully more interesting and useful. So chapter six was another one of the chapters in this book that I thought was pretty good. Uh, they did a decent job. The authors did a pretty good job, I think, of laying out a bunch of different stuff. Uh, they didn't go in depth on any of the things that they laid out. I don't think that's ever their intention with this textbook. I think what they're trying to do is give people a very small taste of different kind of uh, taxonomies, different ways of organizing your thinking about community organizing. And that's what they do here. And like I said, I think they did a pretty good job. And as I was reading it, I, I found that there was like a lot of things that I, I, I wanted to comment on, a lot of things that I wanted to elaborate upon. And, you know, when I when I read the book, I make notes in the margin and stuff like that. Then I, I look at my notes and I, I try to compile on a piece of paper, like all those notes. And then I, I have to make choices. I have to decide out of all the things that I want to talk about, what seems to be the most important, the most pressing, the most useful stuff. And that's what I try to do here. So... I, I cross off the things that I think like, okay, we can either, you know, talk about that in class itself or that's interesting, but it's probably not useful or that's useful, but it's painfully boring. 
and I try to, at the end, you know, have stuff which is both useful and interesting. And today, there's a couple of things in this chapter that I think were uh, important for all of you to be familiar with, to know pretty good. Uh, and it starts off very close to the beginning of the chapter. On the very first page, and going into the very second page, the authors talk about these two ways of working with communities and they just sort of like breeze past them both pretty quickly. And and those two ways are one, the charity organization society way of working with communities, which was pioneered by a woman named Mary Richmond out on the East coast. I believe she lived in Philadelphia. I'm not a hundred percent sure about that, but I'm pretty sure that's where she was doing her, her stuff. Uh, the charity organization society It did this thing that they called uh, social planning. It was also sometimes called social casework. They had this method of going into communities and trying to engage with people, which was called friendly visiting. Uh, And I'll say a little bit more about that in a second here. And and this is, that that was one of the, the ways that they talk about. The second way was pioneered by Jane Addams, and it was called the Settlement House Movement. Uh, Jane Adams is somebody who's a very well-known figure here in the Chicagoland area. I don't know that she's as well-known outside of the Chicagoland area, but she was a, a person, a social worker, you know, who did some really, really interesting, very innovative things. And her style of working with communities was different than the Charity Organization Society. It was a style where people actually went and moved into and then lived in the communities that they were trying to help, they embedded themselves in those communities and they tried to then engage in a lot of direct or action and organization from within the communities themselves. So let's talk about these two things quickly here and talk about how they're similar and how they're different. Uh, They're similar insofar as they were both ways of working within with communities and with individuals within communities simultaneously. They didn't try to do just one or just the other. Uh, both settlement house style and the charity organization friendly visiting style tried to go they, they were they both involved social workers going into communities and uh, you know working directly with individuals within those communities, but then also kind of keeping an eye to the larger community that those individuals were embedded within. You know, social work is this discipline which has been kind of a, it's always had a very close relationship with the style of thinking, which is called the the ecological perspective or ecological thinking. Another way of saying that is that social work has always, always, always been deeply concerned with the fact that individual human beings and families are always, always, always contained within a wider environment, within a wider social context. And it has tried its best, social work has, to take that environment into consideration whenever it is engaging, you know, with anybody, right? That's That's been one of the things that makes it what it is. Both the Charity Organization Society and the Settlement House movements attempted to do that. Uh, where they differ, though, is in the way that they went about engaging in the communities that they were attempting to help. I'll start with the Charity Organization Society here, and this is going to not be an exhaustive history or even a you know, super in-depth description of what they did, but it will give you, a, hopefully, a, a better idea than what the textbook does. So there was this method of working with people that the Charity, organiza- charity Organization Societies did. It was called Friendly Visiting. 
going to kind of try to describe to you what that might look like. So there would be a social worker and that social worker would go into a community that they believed had problems. It could be a problem of crime. It could be a problem of prostitution. It could be a problem of um, uh, delinquency, children running around the streets, lighting things on fire. Who knows? It could be anything, right? And they would literally, um, you know, try to knock on the doors of people and, you know, say, hey, I'm a social worker. I've looked around your community and it seems to me like maybe you could use a hand. So I just wanted to let you know that if you'd like uh, to, to get some help, I, I would like to help you. But it's up to you. It's very much your call, right? They stood at the threshold of the door. And sometimes people, you know, slammed the door in their face, you know, get out of here, social worker. I don't want your help. I don't want to, we're fine. In which case the social workers were like, cool, we won't bother them. Uh, but then when people did say, uh, okay, sure, well, come on in, let's have a conversation. The social workers would come in. And they would then engage in a conversation. And as they were doing this, they were kind of uh, in their heads, you know, doing a process of analysis of what they were seeing, you know, what was going on in the homes, what was going on in the streets and, and trying to um, look at the individuals in the community and look at the community itself as something that was kind of like an object of study for them, right? An object of analysis, really. And that was easier, some would say, for them to do because once they had done their work, you know, after they had gone in and tried to help people out when they'd done their, when they were doing their analysis and stuff like that, when they were done, they'd leave. They'd leave the community that they had gone into and they would go home or they would go back to their home base or something. And then what they would do is they'd meet up with other social workers and they would kind of like share their, their data that they had collected. And in sharing that data, they would talk about it and in talking about it, they would attempt to formulate a good plan on how they might be able to, you know, effectively assist people in that community. Uh, and maybe one of the, the uh, like another way to think about what they were doing is to describe something it might be similar to. So nowadays, uh, sometimes, sometimes surgeons, right, uh, don't necessarily get to know their patients super well. Um, they, because they don't need to know them very well they, to, to do their work. If there's, if you're a heart surgeon or something like that, how much do you need to know about the person? I mean, maybe you need to know a little bit, but, but probably not a lot about them. Like personally, you might need to know about their medical history, that sort of stuff, but not them as a person. Uh, and there's some medical doctors who don't even want to know about people as a person because they think that that sort of, uh, changes the way that they make decisions while they're doing, you know, risky surgeries and stuff like that. Surgeons might want to look at the patient's body as this external object upon which they operate upon. They, they analyze what's wrong with it. They, they then come up with a plan about how they will surgically intervene to fix what's wrong with it. They implement that plan. Hopefully everything goes good. And at the end, they evaluate, you know, how good or bad their surgical intervention was. Right. It, it, and that seems to me to be very similar to the charity organization society's way of working with people. They thought that you wanted to maintain a certain level of like objective distance between the communities that you were working with and yourself. You didn't want to become too enmeshed, too embedded within that community because if you did, then that would, um, you'd start to become like emotionally involved. You'd start to perhaps get over involved uh, in the community and they thought that that could be a bad thing. So let's contrast that to the settlement house movement. The settlement house movement, social workers who were involved with that movement, what they would do 
is they would literally go into a community that was experiencing problems, all the same problems I mentioned before. You know, they, they, there's a community that has a lot of crime, has a lot of prostitution, has a lot of delinquency, kids, you know, running around, lighting uh, things on fire, terrorizing cats and stuff like that. They'd, they'd see that stuff going on. They'd go, oh, look, there, that's a problem. Um, but, and then they would go into the community and they would uh, kind of acquire a piece of property there. They would buy a building, a home, something like that. And then they would move into that building. They'd move into the, that space that they had acquired and they would literally live in the community. They would be embedded within the community. They'd become a part of the community. And then what they would do is they would invite the community into their space that they had set up. They'd say, why don't you come to our office? Why don't you come to this home? We are going to be having classes on like how to cook. We're going to be having childcare there so you can drop your kids off and they'll be within you know, the caring hands of capable people who are not monstrous and who are good at looking after children. They would do those sorts of things in the community itself, right? And they, when they did this, of course, they formed very, very deep, oftentimes very emotional attachments to the community and to the people within the community. But they didn't think that was a problem. They thought that was actually like a, a benefit. They thought it was a feature, not a flaw. And uh, as you can imagine from these two descriptions that I've just given, these two different styles of working with people were at odds with each other, right? Each one kind of thought that they were better than the other. And they both had things that were good. They both had things that were bad. If we take a look at what was bad about the charity organization societies, what I think we can see is that, um, you know, the, the major criticism of them was that they didn't get involved enough. They always maintained too much objective distance. And they were overly concerned with maintaining some kind of objective distance and they privileged that over um, kind of getting involved and in, in really getting involved, right? That was sort of the criticism of them, that they they kept, they were always too far. Good intentions, but too far away. Uh, likewise, the uh, criticism of the Settlement House movement was that what they were doing was too much, right? That they got too involved and on top of that, an additional criticism that was levied at them was that they were kind of imperialistic. And, and when I say that, um, I want to make sure that I can, can communicate what I mean pretty well here. Um, at the time that the Settlement House movement was doing its thing, social workers were pretty much ubiquitously white people, mainly white women. And they would go into communities that were not always, that were uh, at the time, you know, communities that were made up of people from different cultures than the culture that they had come from. And a lot of people nowadays and then kind of argued that what those settlement house social workers were doing was trying to um, get people to sort of like give up their culture and to adopt the culture of kind of like white America. Uh, and that's what I mean by imperialistic, right? That they, they were sort of saying like, we're going to help you communities that are different than Amer general American communities adapt and become more American. Uh, in, in doing this by working with you in the ways that we do. And so some people see that as a flaw. So like I said, this is, this is far from an exhaustive like description of what both of these different things did. Uh, I've given you some highlights as I understand them. And there's people who know a lot more about this than I do, but this is what I know that I'm sharing with you. So here's where I'm going to, to ask you some questions, give you some things to consider. And I'm going to, and when we come back and meet as a class, this is one of the things that we'll talk about. 
Um, given the descriptions that I've just given you, do you feel a little bit more drawn to either one of these two models? And uh, I, I also want to say too that when I ask that question, I think that both of them are good and I think that both of them are bad. Uh, when I've taught this in the past, a lot of times students will sometimes just ask me the question, which one do you think is better? And my answer to that question is I'm undecided. I actually don't know. I, I think that... Uh, both of them make really good points and both of them have some pretty serious flaws. And this is one of those things that I've gone back and forth on a number of times during my time as a student and as a professional social worker. There's times where I've thought that the settlement house movement was by far superior. And there's been times that I've thought the charity organization society was by far superior. I really have gone back and forth a lot. And I think I'll probably continue to do that, right? Um, I revise my opinions based off of my own experiences and off of the knowledge that I have available to me at, at any given time, right? And I'm sure you'll all do the same thing here. So that's the first question we're going to consider here. The, 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 these two different styles of working with people, which one do you think you would prefer? There's not a right answer. There's not a wrong answer. It's really a matter of preference. But think about that and have that answer ready for when you come to class. Um, let's play a little bit of music. And then what we're going to do is we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about some other historical context things that I think are important. So what I want to do next here is I want to talk about some historical things that impacted the way that social workers engage with communities in a pretty significant way. So the first part of the podcast lecture, I talked about the Settlement House Movement and Charity Organization Society. Those were things that kind of got, uh, were really doing their their major mover and, and shaken in uh, as early as the late 1800s and really into the early 1900s through the 1920s. Uh, then there was this really big, huge event that happened in 1929. The stock market ends up crashing. This thing called the Great Depression starts and it lasts for a pretty good long time. Uh, now, I'm, I'm tempted to talk to you about some of the, the things that led to the actual cause of the Great Depression going that, that were happening in the 20s, but I'm going to resist that because, again, like I said, I have to make decisions about what I'm going to talk about here, and that's interesting, but it's probably not useful for you. Um, let's just say we all know the Great Depression occurs. And the other thing that happens around that same time is World War II. Now, 
when World War II comes to an end and the Great Depression also comes to an end, the, the whole world order is kind of reorganized. And in addition to that, the way that the United States is organized is also radically reshaped. Going into the Depression, the United States was a country that was uh, even more so than now, I, I would say, I, I imagine, of course, I didn't live at this time, but I, I think it was a country of that was predicated under this idea of rugged individualism. The idea that uh, individual people are responsible for themselves, um, that individual people need to take care of themselves. Maybe they need to take care of their immediate family members, but it, it was a society that really shunned away from government intervention in the lives of its citizens, right? Government in the United States going into the 1920s was uh, fairly minimalistic, more minimal than it is today, for sure. Then after the Depression and World War II, which were both things that required massive amounts of government intervention, people started to shift their, their ideas here. FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when he was president, he was the first uh, president to create a really massive, super extensive, actually industrialized version of what we might call a welfare state. He created all these different programs that were designed to make sure that the American population would have the things that they need, that the, that the state, the government, would provide them with the things they needed, with employment, with um, uh, money for when their bodies got old and they retired. The social security system was created by, by Roosevelt. Uh, unemployment insurance was another thing that came about in this era. Uh, we started to see these kinds of programs really, really ramp up at this time. And, and what the big shift here was uh, the American kind of population went from a population that by and large wanted government to mind its own business and kind of stay out of their lives to being a population that saw the benefit of having the government kind of act in a very active way in, in the creation of programs and in involving itself in the lives of its citizens, right? The government tried to do things that would provide the population with the things that they, they needed the most, right? Uh, and, and also that the government would take an active role in social issues on top of that, right? And that's one of the other things that, that happened during this time. You know, after FDR, he dies while he's in office. Truman takes over. After Truman, we have Eisenhower, who was a general in World War II. He's a Republican. Um, he kind of starts to, to put a little bit of the, the brakes on a lot of the momentum that these Democratic programs had started. But after Eisenhower, we have Kennedy come in. And after Kennedy, we have, we have LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, come in. And during the, the, in particular, the Kennedy-Johnson era, you know, which takes place in the, like, 50s and 60s America, you have a, a lot of, uh, again, there's, there's a lot of things happening here. Uh, some of the things that are happening at this time are the Civil Rights Movement, uh, the Voter Rights Act gets passed, uh, you have the War on Poverty, which was one of Johnson's programs, right, where he, instead of having, like, a war on drugs or having a war on terrorism or something like that, he decided to declare war on poverty, these are very, very different things. I think I've talked about this in a previous podcast lecture, but every time I bring it up, I just want to highlight how different that is, right? The, the war on drugs, the war on terrorism is about finding bad guys and going and like, you know, teaching them a lesson, you know, getting them. Where a war on poverty is, the, is, a, is a war on this thing that hurts people and, and it's about trying to alleviate the conditions of poverty itself, which seems like a much more worthwhile project to me. I can't resist saying that every time I bring it up. 
So as he does that, he also has this program called the Great Society. You know, Johnson is one of the guys who creates Medicare and Medicaid. He he wants there to be, he tries to do more things so that there's like rigorous uh, science programs that are funded by the government. NASA was one of those programs. Kennedy and Johnson created that, right? Uh, he, both of them were presidents that really saw and believed that government needed to be extremely active in creating a really good life for the people who lived in the country. And, it, and it, they did that along uh, social issues and, and, and a bunch of other things too. However, something happens uh, and this, hap- this really comes to a head during Johnson's second term. Uh, he ta- has a term where he takes over from Kennedy after he is assassinated. He has a term where he gets elected on his own. He could have been in for another term, but he didn't run because he knew he'd lose. And um, part of the reason that he knew he he would lose is because of a bunch of factors kind of happening in concert that put an end to this period of the expansion of government intervention and, and extensive government programs. What are those things? The first thing is the Cold War. Now, the Cold War doesn't only happen during Johnson's time. It, it, it really starts to build up from the end of World War II and lasts all the way into Johnson's presidency. The Cold War is, of course, a, um, a, a non-shooting war, a war of ideas, uh, a war of ideology that takes place between American capitalism and uh, really Russian communism, which is a form of socialism more than it's communism, but let's not split hairs too much here. Uh, at that time, what, what ends up happening is uh, the Soviet Union and the, the United States end up uh, fighting each other in all these weird ways, right? And there's also kind of like a propaganda war that takes place at this time, like I, I, what I called an ideological war a moment ago. And in that ideological war, what's going on is uh, the governments of the Soviet Union and the United States are both trying to convince their own populations and the population of the whole world that their system is better, right? The Soviet Union wants to say that socialism slash communism is a better system and the United States wants to convince people that capitalism is a better system. Now, socialism and communism are systems that definitely involve a huge amount of government intervention in the lives of citizens. Capitalism is a system that involves a a backing off of government, right? Government kind of doesn't get involved in things and lets the, uh, what's called a market and the choices that people make and how they spend their resources make a lot of decisions, right? Um, and, and all that. So the, they're fighting. And at this time, if you were you know, a citizen of the United States, I, remember, I grew up in the 1980s. I was a kid in the 1980s. And I can, I, so I kind of lived through one part of this and I can remember it well. I mean, there, there's just so much stuff that you were taught on a regular basis that, that Russians were just like baddies and no good and they wanted to like blow you up and steal your stuff and, and everything. Um, and they were socialists. And so I can remember it being a kid in like, you know, elementary school, you know, second grade, third grade, so on. And, and thinking Russians are socialists and Russians are bad. And so therefore socialism is bad. And, and I think that my experience is probably not unique. There's probably a lot of other kids who grew up at the time I did and before that, that had very similar experiences. So that's one of the things that's happening. One of the aspects of the Cold War that made it really, really, really uh, anxiety-inducing was the fact that it involved a nuclear arms race. So the United States was building, spending a lot of money and resources, building a lot of nuclear weapons, and so was the Soviet Union. And they were pointing their nuclear weapons at each other. Um, And having nuclear weapons pointed at you is pretty scary. You know, it it doesn't make you want to trust the 
people who are pointing weapons at you, right? So the Russians weren't that interested in trusting the Americans. The Americans weren't that interested in trusting the Russians. And it, it was just a, a really tense, very bad um, time where if you were if you were an American, you were encouraged to think of yourself as the good guy and the Russians as the bad guy. And I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts that the Russians thought of themselves as the good guys and the Americans as the bad guys. So that's going on. Now, I mentioned that this war was being fought in a lot of weird ways. Uh, one of the ways it was being fought was in what was called proxy wars, where rather than engaging each other directly, um, you know, the United States would set up shops someplace and uh, they created this thing called NATO and the Soviet Union created this thing called the Warsaw Pact. And then they would have kind of like al- these these sort of like allies go at it. One of the areas where this kind of proxy war comes to a head is in a country called Vietnam. And uh, the history of the Vietnam War is really, really fascinating and oftentimes tragic history. If you, you ever want to, uh, if you don't know a lot about that, it's worth knowing something about, you know, if, with all the time that you have, you should go out and do a lot of reading about the Vietnam War. That was a joke. I don't think you actually have that time. But if you do, you should actually do it. But anyways, um, the Vietnam War uh, goes on and, and it, it takes many different forms and eventually the Americans get involved in it. And uh, then they get more involved and they get more and more involved and they get really a lot more and more and more involved, so on and so forth. And uh, it's a war that really changes the way that Americans view their government fundamentally. And now this is all my theory here. This isn't a fact that I'm telling you, but this is how I, I perceive this. You know, the, the government was of the United States was the entity that was sending more and more young Americans to this war. And a lot of these Americans that they sent to this war died. It was a war that, that the United States lost. And not only did they lose it, but uh, it's, it, they, they lost it and they lost an enormous amount of life uh, of, of young people, which is always tragic. And, you know, in, in the beginning, I think most Americans were supportive of the war. But uh, over time, they became less supportive. A very similar thing happened. Many of you might have lived through this with the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember the start of that war because I don't know how old all of you are. Um, but I remember the start of that war and I remember people being pretty like fired up for it. They they wanted to go. They they were like, yeah, let's go get Saddam Hussein. Let's go get the terrorists. They blew up the World Trade Center. We're going to get, you know, they're going to get their comeuppance and we're going to give it to them. And years and years and years of war go by. And, you know, it's uh, that kind of war didn't involve the sort of loss of life that we had in Vietnam. But it was an expensive war, and it, and after a while, people were like, why are we doing this? Well, imagine that reaction just turned up several octaves, right, with the way that people reacted to the Vietnam War. And the government, like, they didn't want to back down. The United States government, like, rather than taking a loss, right, and just, like, going, okay, this is clearly not a war we're going to win. Let's just kind of get out of here. They kept on kind of, like, throwing more and more resources into this thing. And it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. They wasted more and more resources. That's one way we could say this. And doing that made people start to go like, you know what? Maybe the government isn't that good at at doing things that are really important. Maybe the government isn't that good at making good decisions. Maybe we shouldn't trust the government. Maybe we actually, this idea of just kind of like letting the market decide what's good and what's bad, like, like maybe letting individual people do that, that, that might be better. And this leads to a rise of um, a, I guess you'd call it, a, again, an ideology, a way of looking at the world called neoliberalism. Uh, and neoliberalism is a, a lot of different things, but uh, the way that I'm going to describe it to you is that it is a, a, 
point of view that is adopted by both the Democratic and the Republican Party, adopted by the Republican Party to a larger extent than the Democratic Party, but the Democrats adopt it too. And this is the, the idea that the era of big government is over. Bill Clinton said that in one of his State of the Union addresses. I don't remember which one, but that was one of the things he, he actually explicitly made that statement. The era of big government is over. Uh, neoliberalism was this idea that what the government should do is stick to just the bare basics, the, the bare essentials, and it then should let the private sector, private businesses, corporations do what they're good at, which is innovate and create new technologies uh, like cars and phones and the internet and stuff like that. Um, and just kind of get out of the way. One of the ways that we can see one of the effects of neoliberalism in the world that we live in today is the fact that, you know, NASA used to be the, the thing that would create space shuttles and use those space shuttles to put people in the space. They built an international space station, so on and so forth. Um, and then it got to the point where NASA stopped doing that. And now we have private companies like SpaceX uh, sending people into space. It's not the government that's doing that. It's these private corporations. But, but, but... These private corporations do get a lot of government in order, a lot of money from the government in order to do these things. Uh, that's a rabbit hole I don't want to go down. But anyways, that's that's the idea of neo neoliberalism that kind of comes up here. Government, get out of the way. Let corporations do this. And, and why am I, I talking to all of you about this? Why why am I saying that this is important? Well, this history, you know, the the depression comes in, government gets really big, gets really powerful, makes a lot of social changes. Um, makes a lot of policies and programs that force people to treat others who have not been treated fairly, more fairly, things like the Civil Rights Act, things like the Voters' Right Act, things like the Americans with Disabilities Act. The government did those sorts of things. And, and then uh, due to a variety of things kind of happening, people lost faith in the government and started to gain faith in corporations. And that's the world that we live in today. That's the world that you live in. That's the world that when you graduate with your MSW, you're going to go into and you're going to try to find a job in that world. And I think that this has had a huge effect on the way that social workers practice. Nowadays, social workers don't, I mean, you're probably going to go to work for a private corporation. Many of you are. And if you don't go to work for a private corporation, many of you are going to go to work for nonprofits or for um, perhaps government agencies like the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Department of Alcohol and Substance Abuse, the Department of Child and Family Services, et cetera. And those those entities are going to be run more like corporations than they are like anything else, right? They'll look to the corporate world to and see what they're doing and, and say, like, we need to emulate them. We need to be efficient like they are. We need to be lean like they are, so on and so forth. And well, they're, they're not going to be trying to necessarily generate a profit for shareholders. They're going to be operating in ways that are very similar to corporations which try to generate profit for shareholders. And this is a really big deal to think about in the ways that we go about working with communities. Um, corporations are interested, corporate entities are, are largely interested in working with communities that can give them a profit, that can generate a profit for them. They're not that interested in working with communities that can't. Uh, to give you an example of this, if you go to certain communities, you can get a sense of um, how interested corporations are in them by seeing if there's things like an Apple store in that community, by seeing if there's a Whole Foods in that community. If you go into a certain community, you're going to see those sorts of things that tells you something about the community, right? Now, why is it that you don't see like the Apple store or Whole Foods uh, in places like East Aurora? You know, why not? You know, they, well, there's reasons for this, right? They don't, they don't think that it would be a good business decision for them to possibly open a location in, the, in a neighborhood like East Aurora or Joliet or... Um, Inglewood or, or other places like that, that that we might be familiar with here in the Chicagoland area. 
Um, so if, and, and I say that because I think it's important to point out that if social service agencies run in a, according to a similar kind of ideological perspective as corporations, think about the impact that's going to have on the communities that they serve and on the kind of work that you're going to do if you try to serve communities. All right, so that's that. Um, I've made this podcast lecture longer than I thought it would be. Um, let's leave you with a question here. So the first question, quick review, was you know about the settlement house uh, movement or the charity organization society. I asked you which one you'd prefer. That'll be one of the things we talk about. Uh, the other thing that I'm going to ask you about is you know what do you think is the appropriate role for government in our society? Um, uh, that's another question I'm going to ask you. Another question, and then the last one. So we're going to have three. You know, which would you prefer, charity organization, settlement house? What is the role of government in society is the second one. And the third one is, do you think that, that corporations or the government are, if you had to pick, are, is, is better at making things happen that are good for communities? And that's sort of my last question. Um, and we'll wrap up here. I'll do, like I said, one more podcast lecture that I'll also release along with this one. Um, read your chapters. I look forward to seeing you all in class on Wednesday. Till then, make glorious mistakes. Just as long as you stay